Hello there, and welcome to episode 5 of What You May Have Miffed, and the halfway point of this series. After last week's shorter episode, we are back to our regularly scheduled full-length episode and making a foray into a new country's mythology. A country that, now I think about it, is remarkable we haven't visited before, given its incredible history and mythology. This week, we are headed east once again, and into India. Somewhere I have long wanted to visit. It's a fascinating country and exquisitely diverse. In the north, the Himalayas, the highest peaks in the world, dominate the skyline, whilst in the south, the mighty waves of the Indian Ocean are ever-present. And in between, there are bustling cities, rolling hills and fields of every colour. But we're not here to talk about geographical features, so I shall cease my rambling. We are here to explore a folk tale from this wonderful land. Like many tales we have had previously, this story contains a king. But have no fear, he is not a nasty and manipulative king, but one everyone in the land actually adored. Makes a nice change. The starring role is taken by an apparent holy man, but all is not as it seems. A bit of role reversal in this story. Anyway. Let's get on with it. The Royal Thief Catcher Once, in Sravasti, one of the smaller cities of India, on a baking hot day, many people gathered to ogle at a strange man who had walked into the town. He looked exhausted, and his bare feet were sore after what had clearly been a long walk of great distance over rough roads. He was a holy man, a man who had dedicated his life to prayer and abandoned all his possessions for the sake of pleasing his gods. He did not care for a comfortable bed, money or even good food. The only thing the holy man carried with him was a walking staff to aid in his journey, a wooden bowl in which to take offerings to his gods from people who believed it their duty to do so in order to win favour from the gods, and a loincloth around his waist. He wore nothing but this loincloth, and his hair was long and dirty from lack of washing and brushing. The strange holy man struggled his way through the town, ignoring the stares of the people, until he found a suitable place right in the centre, where he sat down and laid his bowl out in front of him. Before accepting any offerings, the man made it clear that he would not accept anything to eat except rice still in the husk, and pure water. In his bowl, however, he would accept money, and when the locals discovered this and wished to help him, they found ways in order to give it to him. They gave him many silver and gold coins, and if they had no physical coinage to give him, they gave him precious jewels from their home, in order for the holy man to sell. As time went by, 
the holy man became very well known in Sravasti. His fame actually spread far beyond the town, and people came from far away to ask him about all sorts of things, and he gave them good advice, for he was a very wise man. Those who wanted him to tell them what to do paid him for his advice, and as many of them had plenty of money, they were glad to help him, and soon he became quite rich. He could have done a great deal of good with all this money, helping the poor and the suffering. But did he? No, he never thought of doing so. Instead, he formed a deep attachment and love for the money. One night, when all those who had come to see him had gone home, and there was no fear of his being found out, he used to steal away into the forest, and there he dug a deep hole at the root of a great tree, into which he placed all his money. Much like Spain and Mexico, India has a siesta time. That is to say, a sleep in the middle of the day, because the heat is so great it is difficult to keep well and strong without this extra rest. It's something I'm very jealous we don't have here in the UK, but there we go. Although it is quite light at the time, the streets are completely empty, except for the dogs who roam around in search of food. Now, the holy man loved his money and other treasures so much that he often did without this siesta, and instead went to the forest to enjoy the pleasure of looking at them. When he got to the tree, he would bend down, clear away the earth and leaves with which he had hidden his secret hole, take out the money, and let it slip through his fingers and hold up the jewels to the light to watch how they gleamed and glistened. He was never so happy as when he was alone with his riches, and it was all he could do to tear himself away from them when the time came to return to town. Actually, he was becoming a selfish git instead of the holy man the people of Sravasti thought he was. By the time the siesta was over, he was always back again in his place beneath the tree, holding out his bowl and looking as poor and thin as ever, so that nobody had any true idea of what he was doing. The holy man led this double life for several months, until one day, when he went as usual to his hiding place, he saw at once that someone had been there before him. Terrified, he knelt down, full of fear of exactly what had happened. All his efforts at concealing the hole had been for naught. It was empty. He could not believe his eyes. He rubbed them hard, thinking that there was something wrong with them. Then he felt round the hole, hoping that he was mistaken. But he had no choice but to believe the terrible truth. There really was not a sign of his money and jewels. He became almost mad with misery. He began to run from tree to tree, peering into their roots, and when there was still nothing to be seen, he rushed back again to his empty hole to look into it once more. Then he wept and tore at his hair, stamped about and cried aloud to all the gods he believed in, making all kinds of promises of what he would do if only they would give him back his treasures. No answer came and he began to wonder who could have done such a terrible thing. It must, he felt sure, have been one of the people in Sravasti, and he now remembered he had noticed that a good many of them had looked into his bowl with longing eyes when they saw the money and precious stones it contained. 
what horrible, wicked people they are, he said to himself. I hate them. I should like to hurt them as much as they have hurt me. And as he thought this, his anger grew until he became quite exhausted with rage. Never knew that could happen. After roaming about in the forest for many a day, the holy man went back to a house in Sravasti, where some very kind people had lent him a room, glad and proud to have such a holy man, as they thought he was, living under their roof. He felt sure they had had nothing to do with the loss of his treasure, because they had given him many proofs of their goodness and honesty. Soon he was pouring out all his grief to them, and they did all they could to comfort him, telling him that he would very soon have plenty more money and jewels. They did tell him, however, that they thought it was mean of him to hide away his riches instead of using them to help the poor and suffering, and this just added very much to his rage. Eventually he lost all self-control and cried, There is no point to my living any more. I will go to some holy place of pilgrimage by the banks of the river, and there I will starve myself to death. Bit extreme. A place of pilgrimage, as you may or may not know, is one where some great event, generally connected with religion, has taken place, to which pilgrims go to pray in the hope of winning some special favour from their god or gods. The word pilgrim means a wanderer, but it has come in course of time to signify any traveller who comes from a distance to such a place. Benares in India is a very famous place of pilgrimage because it is on the river Ganges, which the Hindus worship and love, believing that its waters can wash away their sins. Hundreds and thousands of Hindus go there every year to bathe in it, and many who know that they have not long to live wait on its banks to die, so that after their bodies have been burnt, as is the custom with Hindus, their ashes may be thrown into the sacred stream. Non-religious folks can also go on pilgrimage to places that have a significant meaning to them. They probably don't call these journeys pilgrimages, and they usually have significantly less spiritual meaning. Unless it's me, going to the Lego shop. Again. Anyway, carrying on. The news of the holy man's loss spread very quickly through Sravasti, and as is so often the case, everyone who told the story made it a little different, so that it became very difficult to know what the truth really was. There was great distress in the town, because the people thought the holy man would go away, and they did not want him to do that. They were proud of having a man they thought so devout living amongst them, and ashamed that he should have been robbed whilst he was with them. When they heard that he meant to starve himself to death, they were dreadfully shocked and pledged to do everything they possibly could to prevent it. One after another of the chief men of Sravasti came to see him and implored him not to be in such a hurry to disappear and to have faith that his treasure would be found. They said they would all do everything they possibly could to get it back for him. Some of them, though, thought it was very wrong of him to make such a fuss about it and blamed him for being a cheapskate. They told him it was daft to care so much for what he could not take with him when he died, and one especially wise old man gave him a long lecture on the wickedness of taking away the life which had been given to him by God to prepare for that in the other world. Put the idea of starving yourself out of your head, he said. 
and whilst we are seeking your treasure, go on as you did before you lost it. Next time you have any money and jewels, turn them to good account instead of hoarding them up. In spite of everything the people told him, the holy man was quite determined that he would live no longer. He set off to the place of pilgrimage he had chosen, taking no notice of anyone he met on the way, but just plodded steadily onwards. At first, quite a number of people followed him, but they didn't last long, and soon he was quite alone. One day, however, he could not help noticing a man approaching from the direction in which he was going. Very tall, very handsome, very dignified, this man was one whom no one could fail to admire, even if he had been only an ordinary person. He was, in fact, the king of the whole country, whose name was Prasnajit, and a little distance behind him were a number of his attendants. Everybody, even the holy man, loved the king because he took such a very great interest in his people and was always trying to do good for them. He had heard all about the loss of the money and was very much displeased that such a thing should have happened in his land. He had also heard that the holy man meant to kill himself, and this distressed him more than anything else, because he thought it a very wicked and terrible thing to do. The king stood directly in the path of the holy man, so it was impossible to pass him by without taking any notice of him. So the unhappy man stood still, hanging down his head and looking very miserable. Without waiting for a moment, Prasnajit said to the holy man, Do not grieve any more. I will find your treasure and give it back to you, or if I fail to do so, I will pay you as much as it was worth out of my own purse, for I cannot bear to think of you killing yourself. Now tell me very carefully where you hid your gold and jewels, and everything about the place to help me make sure of it. The holy man was delighted to hear this, because he knew full well that the king would keep his word, and that even if his own treasure was never found, he would have plenty of money given to him by the king. He told Prasnajit exactly where he had put his store and offered to take him there. The king agreed to go with him at once, and he and the holy man went straight to the big hole in the forest, with the attendants following them a little way behind. After the king had seen the big empty hole and noticed exactly where it was and the nearest way to it from the town, he returned to his palace, first telling the holy man to go back to the house he lived in and wait there until he received a message from him. He promised to see that he received everything he needed and sent one of his attendants to a rich merchant of Sravasti to order him to supply the holy man with all he required. Very glad that after all he was not going to have to kill himself, the holy man obeyed willingly, and for the next few days he was taken care of by the merchant, who supplied him with plenty of food. As soon as Prasnajit was back in his palace, he pretended that he was taken suddenly ill. His head ached badly, he said, and he could not make out what was the matter with him. He ordered a declaration to be sent all around the town, it told all the doctors to come to the palace to see him. So all the doctors in the town at once hastened to obey, each of them hoping that he would be the one to cure the king and win a great reward. 
There were so many of them that the great reception room was full of them, and they all glared at each other so angrily that the attendants kept careful watch lest they should begin a fight. One at a time they were taken to the king's private room, but very much to their surprise and disappointment, he seemed quite well and in no need of help from them. Instead of talking about his own illness, he asked each doctor who his patients were in the town and what medicines he was giving to them. Of course, Prasnajit's questions were carefully answered, but the king said nothing more, just waving his hand to indicate that the interview was at an end. Then the attendants led the visitor out. At last, however, a doctor came who said something which led the king to keep him longer than he had kept any of the others. This doctor was a very famous healer who had saved the lives of many of Prasnajit's subjects. He told the king that a merchant named Matradatta was very ill, suffering greatly, but that he hoped to cure him by giving him the juice of a certain plant called Nagabala. When this story was written, doctors in India did not give their patients medicine or write prescriptions for them to take to the chemists to be made up, because there were no chemists in those days. A doctor just said to his patient, you must take the juice of this or that plant, and the suffering person had to go into the fields or woods to find the plant or else to send a servant to do so. When the king heard that the doctor had ordered Matridata to take the juice of the Nagabala plant, he cried, No more doctors need come to see me. And after sending away the one who had told him what he wanted to know, he gave orders that Matridata should be sent for at once. Ill and suffering though he was, Matridata did not dare disobey the king, so he came at once. As soon as he appeared, Prasnajit asked him how he was, and said he was sorry to have to make him leave his home when he was this ill, but the matter on which he wished to see him was of very great importance. Then he suddenly added, When your doctor ordered you to take the juice of the Nagabala plant, whom did you send to find it? Matridata replied, trembling with fear, My servant, O king, sought it in the forest, and having found it, brought it to me. Go back home, and send that servant to me immediately. Then go to bed and recover, my friend, was the reply, and the merchant hurried away, wondering very much why the king wanted to see the man, and hoping that he himself would not get into disgrace on account of anything he had done to make Prasnajit angry. When Matridata told his servant that he was to go to the palace to see the king, the man was dreadfully frightened and begged his master not to make him go. This made Matridata pretty sure that he had done something wrong and was afraid of being found out. Go at once, he said, and whatever you do, speak the truth to the king. That will be your only chance if you have offended him. Again and again the servant begged Matridata not to insist, and when he found it was no good, he asked him at least to come with him to the palace and plead for him with Prasnajit. The merchant knew then for certain that something was seriously wrong, and he consented to go to the palace with his servant, partly out of curiosity and partly out of fear for himself. When the two got to the palace, the attendants led the servant to the presence of the king, but they would not let the master go with him. When the servant entered the room and saw the king sitting on his throne, 
he fell upon his face at the foot of the steps, crying, Mercy! Mercy! He was right to be afraid, for Prasnijit said to him in a loud voice, Where are the gold and the jewels you took from the hole in the roots of a tree when you went to find the Nagabara plant for your master? The servant, who really had taken the money and jewels, was so terrified when he found that the king knew the truth that he had not a word to say at first, but just remained lying on the ground, trembling all over. Prasnajit, too, was silent, and the attendants waiting for orders behind the throne looked on, wondering what would happen now. When the silence had lasted about ten minutes, the thief raised his head from the ground and looked at the king, who still said not a word. Something in his face, however, made the wicked servant hope that he would not be punished by death despite the great wrong he had done. The king looked very stern, it is true, but not enraged against him. So the servant rose to his feet and, clasping his hands together as he held them up to Prasnajit, said in a trembling voice, I will fetch the treasure, I will fetch the treasure. Go then at once, said the king, and bring it here. And as he said it, there was a beautiful expression in his eyes which made the thief even more sorry for what he had done than he would have been if Prasnajit had said, Off with his head! or had ordered him to be beaten. Remember, the king was greatly loved by all for a reason. As soon as the king said, Go at once, the servant started to his feet and hastened away, as eager now to restore what he had stolen as he had been to hide it. He had put it in another hole in the very depths of the forest, and it was a long time before he got back to the palace with it, for it was very heavy. He had thought the king would send guards with him to see that he did not run away, and that they would have helped him to carry the sack full of gold and jewels, but nobody followed him. It was hard work to drag the heavy load all the way alone, but at last, quite late in the evening, he was back at the palace gates. The soldiers standing there let him pass without a word, and soon he was once more in the room in which the king had received him. Prasnajit still sat on his throne, and the attendants still waited behind him, when the thief, so tired he could hardly stand, once more lay prostrate at the bottom of the steps leading up to the throne, with the sack behind him. How his heart did beat as he waited for what the king would say. It seemed a very long time before Prasnajit spoke, though it was only two or three minutes, and when he did, this is what he said. Go back to your home now, and be a thief no more. Very, very thankfully, the man obeyed, scarcely able to believe that he was free to go, and that he was not to be terribly punished. Never again in the rest of his life did he take what did not belong to him, and he was never tired of telling his children and his friends of the goodness of the king who had forgiven him. The holy man, who had spent the time of waiting in prayers that his treasure should be given back to him, and was still determined that, if it were not, he would starve himself to death, was full of delight when he heard it had been found. He hastened to the palace and was taken before the king, who said to him, There is your treasure. Take it away and make a better use of it than before. 
If you lose it again, I shall not try to recover it for you. The holy man, glad as he was to have his money and jewels restored, did not like to be told by the king to make a better use of them. Besides this, he wanted to have the thief punished, and he began talking about that instead of thanking Prasnajit and promising to follow his advice. The king looked at him much as he had looked at the thief and said, The matter is ended so far as I have anything to do with it. Go in peace. The holy man, who was accustomed to being honoured by everyone from the king on his throne to the beggars in the street, was astonished at the way in which Prasnajit spoke to him. He would have said more, but the king made a sign to his attendants, two of whom dragged the sack to the entrance of the palace and left it there, so that there was nothing for the holy man to do but take it away with him. What the holy man did with his great wealth no one ever found out. After his dismissal from the king, no more was ever said about him. I like to think that he did as he was bid by Prasnajid, but evidence in his behaviour in the tale hint towards the fact that he did not. But I guess we'll never know. I hope you enjoyed that tale. It makes a nice change to have a pleasant king rather than an old miser who punishes everyone for no reason other than his own evil persona. Next week, we are once again venturing to another new country. We really are powering through them. And it's another double bill containing two very different tales. If you have any questions, you can always email me at themythspodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet me on at mythpodcast, Instagram me at what you may have mythed, and I've even started a TikTok, not that I know how to use it, and you can find me on what you may have mythed. For now, farewell, and I shall see you next week for another episode of What You May Have Miffed.